Welcome to the opening episode of The State of Sports. You might recognize my voice here on Cliff Central. My name is Ben Karpinski. I spent many, many hours in the studio as a sporting fan and very happy to return, actually, because I feel with this podcast series, The State of Sport, we've got many great conversations to have. My first guest is Nobile Lobu. Oops, how's it going? Ben, how are you doing, man? Thanks so much for having me on here. Well, I'm super happy to have you on here because the state of sports, uh, the podcast series is going to be a, a wide variety of subjects, but you know, the state of so many things from the live game, how fans interact with sport right now, the certain money issues. And that is where you come in here because you are the director of cash and sport, yeah. which you're going to tell me about in a second. But how the two of us know each other for some background here is that Nubs used to be the social media manager, the brains, the execution behind Betway's accounts. Now, if you understand sport, you understand that betting and betting companies are very entrenched in sport. Mm. They're very involved and they're very active. So take all of that, the knowledge that you must have in order to run a social media account for a betting company, I think gives you a very basic understanding about how accomplished my guest is today. Add on to that investigative journalist skills, a curiosity and a huge sporting brain and someone that probably knows more about football than I'll ever do, even if I had to dedicate the rest of my life to it. This is the man I have in front of me today. <laughs> wow. But it went so far that you were just not content by just having a, a job, so to speak. Cash and sport. Now, this is heavy research. You are doing things. You are delving into this real state of sport out there from a business commercial aspect and obviously seeing what moves the needles. How did this come about and what made you start this? Yeah. Just talk about an introduction. Um, no, no, yeah. no, no, say that was off the cuff. <laughs> no, well, so Cash and Sport, um, Cash and Sport is interesting because, um, it's literally, uh, I, I, I try to make it seem as though I live at the intersection of cash and sport, hence the name. Um, it came about in, um, actually, I think it was about 2017 when I first started having the idea about doing it. At this time, I was working, um, at Betway, as you said. Um, running the social media teams across the, across the continent, which yeah, is at I, the time I think, about seven countries. I think I messed that up. I yeah. totally downplayed it. You weren't just the manager. You were running the teams. Yeah. 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 So I had, um, groups of employees in each country and I would have to, you know, jump between sure. all of the countries and make sure that things were working and making Betway the, you know, I wanted to make Betway the Colgate of betting companies in that, you know, if, if you wanted to place a bet, People would ask you, are you placing a bet with Betway first before they ask you about any other company? Sure. And I think, I think we achieved that. Um, and I left in, uh, at the end of 2021. Um, but you know, this idea around cash and sports started basically in 2017 when I was very annoyed at the fact that I couldn't find any information about the business of sport, about who owns how much money in the Premier League or, well, this was the Premier Soccer League at the time. Mm. Um, and, um, I couldn't find anything really. Um, so I, was, I actually put out a tweet about it uh, at the end of 2017. I said, okay, I'm going to set myself a challenge to be Africa's voice on the business of sport. I didn't really do anything about it in 2017. Um, 2018 went by. Um, and then in 2019, I met, that is now my, uh, you know, 2019 COVID, well, COVID comes around. I started putting out a little bit of research here and there, but nothing, nothing major. 2020, I met my, my wife, um, and she's an auditor and, 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 and a CA. And she says, well, you know, you like these things. 
um, I can help you to, you know, to, to understand the numbers side of it. If you, if you really want to get into it. And that's how it started. I started doing research on, um, the owners of clubs in the premier soccer league and where they got their money from. And if I could find any, um, you know, reference to numbers, um, you know, cause a lot of these guys are tenderpreneurs. They make a lot of money from, from, uh, from, you know, uh, government contracts and so on. Mm-hmm. Those, because they have to be publicized, you know how much the government is paying them. So you could basically paint a picture of, you know, what the first, what the financial st- sustainability, geez, my English daughter bundle's running out, what the financial <laughs> sustainability of a club is by the virtue of, of understanding where these guys get their money. Cause most of our clubs are run by their owners. And that's where it started. And in 2021, at the end of 2021, um, I'd gotten so much attention and a lot of people had come to me and said, well, you know, we pay people for this type of insight. Uh, do you want to go and do it as a, as a career? Um, took me a couple of months and said, okay, cool, let's do it. And that's where I am now. So for the past few months, this has been a four on 24 seven research company, uh, that provides insights to a whole bunch of people that I can't really mention because of, of NDAs and stuff like that. But, yeah, that's that's what yeah, I do now. I, I always feel like the slight caveat with you because the information that is actually in your head you can't always divulge. Yeah, but we'll get into that a little bit later. So, um, one thing I really do admire about the stuff that I see on a week to week basis are the Twitter threads that you create. Mm-hmm. So on Twitter, cash and then the letter N, sport, cash and yeah. sport. That's um, where you are most prolific. Yeah, a lot must go into those things. And um, sorry, just prior to that, why I really want to chat to you and why I think you're so important in sport right now is that sport is under attack because. It is so incredibly competitive. I think mm. prior to COVID, it, it, where the fans' eyeballs were, were already so all over the place. Yeah. COVID then came. People were maybe less emotionally connected towards sports. We're talking in the mainstream here because mm-hmm. dialogues like us will always find our sports and always support them. Yeah. But sport only grows and sport only lives when the general populace is really behind it, like all things on a mainstream level. Yeah. So I think what you do is that you legitimize sport a whole bunch more by trying to get more into what goes into it. And I think when you give brands and when you give um, companies an actual reason to get involved in sport, that's mm-hmm. the actual lifeblood to it. So that is why I think this is so important. If we're just going to be, well, this tournament's every single year, these yeah. fans kind of come to it. Eventually people say, yeah, that's not enough. Yeah. So I think, you know, we all have to play this role in like how do we build up sport because it is so much more than just guys running onto the field and then there's a score at the end. Yeah. And this is something that, you know, like I used to be just the fanboys. I used to love fans and that was me. I used to drink about 12 drafts a weekend and shout at and scream at TVs because like any other person, that's what sport is. But it really is just, it's in the entertainment space now. So you got to compete with Netflix. You got to compete with pretty much everyone. Tom Cruise in a fighter jet. You are competing with everything that can grab your eyeballs. Yeah. So obviously now this is your full time gig. This mm-hmm. is something that you are working on all the time. How much, let's just go with like with a Twitter thread. Just, uh, I think it was last week. I read mm. something it was very, very interesting. Um, your sort of research methods. Do you mm. have like certain sources that you are trusting? Is it all like kind of more in the journalism space where you talk to people individually? Generally, um, I try not to be that guy that, that, you know, I try not to be as journalistic and, and for a very long time as part of my threads, I would put out a disclaimer as the second tweet and say, I'm not a journalist because I think that journalists are, are trained and I, I didn't want to be disrespectful to the art of journalism. 
Um, I think you're being too kind to <laughs> journalism nowadays. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, but um, a lot of a lot of the stuff that I that I uncover is mostly desk research, where it's just hours um, going through. Sometimes you you'll find dead links. I I, I scroll through a lot of government um, uh, websites and and information that they put out there without knowing you know the ramifications of putting it out there. Um, yeah. And obviously, it's public information, right? We should know that information. Um, I do have an, a number of people that send stuff to me um, and say, listen, take a look at this. Um, but if it's not publicly available and if it's stolen information, I generally don't use it. Um, or let, let me not say stolen information, sort of, I guess maybe whistleblower type of, type of stuff. I generally don't use it because one, I don't, I don't want to get sued. Two, um, you never know what, you know, what agendas people may have and they would feed you information, which is, um, you know, problematic. So yeah, I, mean, I generally the, try and there's generally a lot of can of worms you don't want to kind of open in this. Yeah, I try. I generally try to keep it PC, but you know the the problem that we have on the continent and not just uh, South Africa because I want you know the, the business is an is an Africa focused business, not a, not South Africa focused. Generally, generally we have a problem in that we don't document enough um, what we're doing. Like for instance, I put out a, a series of tweet a, a thread yesterday about Morocco and the you know sports tourism and why all of a sudden Morocco seems to be the go-to place for hosting you know CAF uh, fixtures and games and people were surprised to know that in Morocco has been doing this since 1980 it's not something that just happened yeah but the problem is that no one's ever written something about it to say okay this is the full picture and well, we don't do that enough well I, I, again I, I recommend reading this thread because I'll go right to the end mm. what I love about it is that you did document it chronologically and what has happened mm. but right at the end there was something quite chilling about it you said that South Africa couldn't host something because of electricity vulnerability yeah well what, one yeah. of the reasons why we couldn't one of the reasons why we failed to host is there were two main reasons basically the one is that we is that 50% capacity mm-hmm um, and the second is we just can't keep the lights on. If you were watching that game, I think it was the Pumas a few weeks ago. When the up against up. Western yes. Province. Yeah, that's that's a problem. If if you can't if you can't maintain just the basics, just like electricity, uh, how can you expect to attract international level events? I mean, um, it, it made for a, a funny sports clip on Supersport, but ultimately it's hugely embarrassing it's when hugely live embarrassing. sport drops out the lights. Yeah, and I didn't say anything about it because fine, fine, it's funny and people are laughing about it, but. That image says to you that this country is not ready to host. And this is part of the reason why if, if you're going to talk about, and I'll we'll probably talk about it later, um, about hosting international events, those things are what gives, you know, your, your country a lot of eyeballs, um, and gives, um, you know, it gives you a lot of attention when you want, you know, a lot of people to come to your country. Exactly. Yeah. So I think, look, I've got about a hundred different topics I'd love to throw at you and get some insights around. Let's start with hosting events, rugby yeah. world cup. Yeah. I, I'm just going to say it. I, I think we were absolutely done over by the French, Billy mm. Beaumont or whoever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, the 2023 world cup, I think was very much, um, should have been South Africa when you consider the amount of trophies we've won, the impact we have in world rugby and ability to host. Although your last comments about electricity just completely ruined my argument. Yeah. But so anyway, moving right on from there, South Africa, then um, World Rugby announced the fact that it'll be Australia and obviously North America mm-hmm. will be the next host. So the mm-hmm. next two World Cups taken care of. Massive outroar from, uproar from the local fans here saying, what about South Africa? Yeah. Now, am I right in saying that we didn't even bid for those Rugby World Cups? 
Yeah. So the 2017, so in 2017, we were the preferred candidate, um, alongside, uh, France and Ireland. We, we were the best. Basically our score, um, was higher than both of them. Our problem is that, um, and just to explain to listeners, uh, rugby world cup, 80% of the revenue come, uh, for world rugby comes from the rugby world cup. A large chunk of that revenue comes from these tournament fees that world rugby charges countries to host. We, we put out a fee or guaranteed fee of about 220 million. Um, uh, while they take it in pounds, so all of these numbers are going to be in pounds. It was about 220 million that we had guaranteed. Um, France guaranteed 500 million. Wow. So it's a lot more money. And that basically, if you look at, um, you know, the, the, the numbers, World Rugby is always going to say, well, we need a surplus, uh, in order to survive. Wait, sorry, hang on a second. So that guarantee is that money post tournament that the French no, are they, able? They, they, they guarantee it prior to the tournament. If it's not, it's part of their bid package. So they put it together as part of a bid package and say, we will pay you a guaranteed fee of, of 200 million or 500 million. They also then said to World Rugby that they would pay, um, that they would buy the, um, the broadcast and image rights for that tournament. Um, so that World, World Rugby doesn't have to then go and try and find media partners and, and so on and so on. The French would buy it and then they would have to try and go and find broadcast partners and so on oh. and so on to, to commercialize it. So out of pocket, the French already had 500 million out of pocket. So now they have to try and make but, that money back. In, but then World Rugby has two tournaments, essentially, if you look at those numbers, because, I mean, it was essentially double what yeah, South was going to give them. But whoever bids, that's why the French won the bid, right? Um, well, that's a very short conversation then, of course. Yeah, that's that's, that's right why there. the French won the bid. That is, um, a, that is a staggering yeah, amount of money. And if you look at the the US bid um, for for their World Cup that they're putting – Putting up together with Canada, I think that's going to be the yeah. the North America one. Uh, Five hundred million—that's what they've pledged. So already, I mean, if the if the minimum uh, that World Rugby would requires as a minimum pledge is one hundred twenty, South Africa puts up two hundred and France puts up five hundred, we're not going to get that World Cup. Okay, <laughs> you know, so it's now a simple economics thing. Now, do you know what um, Australia then did? Because that to me was a very surprise choice. Again, I I wasn't privy to the knowledge you just shared with me right yeah. now. So I don't see why Australia should get it on any level. Firstly, it's like a fourth sport in winter. I don't think it's a very good country to have it because you've got Perth on the one side, Sydney on the other. That's a very big mm. difference. There's a lot of reasons why it shouldn't go there. What, yeah. what, what, what do they cough up on? Um, I didn't and, and actually also, how, look at, how would they get that much money? Yeah. I didn't look, actually look at what, what Australia provided as a, as a guarantee, but part of the reasons why we also didn't get it was, the the reasons that we'd spoken about earlier prior to you know getting into the numbers, which is sure. um, instability with regards to um, just being able to sustain uh, you know electricity and just being a country that's able to host. And then obviously our government said, well, you know we can't really support the bid financially, so that's and that's part of the reason why we pulled out. Um, and, and as far as, okay, so I, I get that you've got to put the guarantees up, but mm. then going through the hoops to get there, I mean, how costly is that in, in regard to? Well, it costs a lot of money just to bid in the first place. Um, is, this all, is this money that's going to Rugby World Cup? Yeah. Sorry, like World Rugby again? Yeah. So in 1995, right, um, 
the there were fees. So there's minimum fees that you that you that you have to put together. Nineteen ninety five when we hosted the tournament costs were ten point six million uh, pounds. Nineteen ninety nine when Wales hosted twenty five million pounds. Two thousand and three when Australia hosted sixty two point three million. Um, and then France um, after that was one hundred thirty three million. So the tournament costs have been going up incrementally a lot. Feels like the French keep ticking this up far too long. Yeah, they do, but they, at the end of the day, the, the euro will always trump the rand and, and, uh, um, no, that's that. I totally get that, but you know, world rugby have this sort of obligation to obviously further the game, globalize things yeah. like everyone has to. This is why they took it to Japan, right? But Japan again, let's, Japan get it, got it for the first time. Um, they also threw up, I think it was more in the region of 300 million or something to that effect. Sure. So again, they provided the financial guarantees. They had the stadiums because, you know, the stadiums were already there. They knew at the time that, you know, they've got a pretty good team. So they, they wouldn't have had an issue with regards to putting the, to getting the fans to watch. Sure. Cause that's also another problem, right? Is that you could have a World Cup, but how many people are actually playing rugby? How many people are watching? Um, it's, it's a problem if, if you then can't get it broadcast, um, to, to enough people around the world so that you can actually make money because broadcast uh, fees are a huge component as well. Yeah. So there's, there's a whole bunch of things that come into it, but ultimately we should have won it. Uh, time zone wise, we're perfectly placed. Um, yeah, it's, it, it came down to money basically. I just get the impression that that then means that only, only certain countries are going to host world cups going forward. We're not going to see a world cup in South Africa probably for the next well, we, we know for sure that we're not going to see one for the next 15 or so years. Mm. It's not going to happen, in my opinion, unless, unless economically this country picks up. Um, we're not going to see another World Cup for another 50 years, probably. Yeah. But again, I'm, I'm not even going to be emotional and try to fight you on that. Those guarantees, that's business. And again, yeah. World Rugby, they sell things. I know we, um, we were involved, my, my agency retroactive, we're involved in, trying to source some rights to certain footage. Mm. You understand where these guys make big margins. It is ridiculous. Together with like IMG and those kind of companies, it is a business and it's a big business and they really do capitalize on these kind of things. And and so be it. I mean, if we were at the head there, Mm. we, and we were doing this, we would be a failure at our jobs. Yeah, absolutely. But to get into a slightly more positive space with regards to local rugby in South Africa, Mm. the United Rugby Championship. Yeah. As a Stormers fan, obviously, I've been loving this tournament. Mm. It is finally a tournament where they've been pretty good. Mm. But, you know, you just said that we're perfectly positioned time time zone. I was mm. hugely for this amalgamation with the Northern Hemisphere. Mm. New Zealand can go be smug by themselves with mm. the Pacific Islanders and the Australians. I really don't care. Yeah. Do you think this is going to be the financial sort of boom that we might need, considering that there are other like things at play here? Obviously, hosting World Cups is not going to really help. We're not going to the conversation is done in my mind. Mm. Is the URC going to be something that's really going to help uh, springboard rugby? Considering that when you watch that documentary series, Two Sides, mm. it was kind of revealed recently that if the Lions tour didn't happen, mm. Saru might just be no longer. Yeah. So firstly and foremost, like, can you verify that? And secondly, is the United Rugby Championships and the move up north going to be the sort of financial lifeline that we hope it will be? I do think so, for sure. Um, last week I spoke to, to, to Edward Kutsia, uh, the CEO, um, at the Sharks. And, um, he mentioned that just from, from the fan fest, they, well, they held a, a fan fest and we'll talk about fans, um, later. 
after the fan fest, that war, that game that they played against Leinster, which happened, I think, two weeks after the floods happened. Right. They had 30% more fans in the stadium. Um, their fan, their, their attendance numbers for every other game after that also increased. So they've had, in terms of numbers of fans in the stadium, more now in 2022, regardless of floods and all of these, like, these things that have happened in KZN, than they had in the previous five years on, on average. So the numbers of fans watching are increasing. Um, it's absolutely correct that had we not hosted the Lion series, ooh, SA rugby would have been in a world of trouble. Um, I, I looked at the, um, at the numbers prior to, to that event. Um, and SA rugby, if I'm not mistaken, I think we were looking at something in the order of a billion rand in terms of economic impact. Wow. Just from the Lions series alone. Um, yeah, so they include the fans and tourism and those kind yeah, of things. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously as, a, as a result of, of, of fans not being allowed, we lost out on a huge amount of money. Massively. Um, but if you're talking, if you're talking about 300 million rand in, in revenue from broadcasts and, and so on and so on, it's massive. Um, and you know, if you're looking at, at that event on its own, um, and then you go and you look at what maybe let's say CVC, uh, what's this, uh, Silver Lake paid for their stake in the All Blacks, for instance, right. where they paid 130 million. You know, it, it's, it's not a huge amount of money if in, in the grand scheme of things, but you know, it's, it's substantial. It's a substantial amount. I think we, I think, um, I'd have to go and check the, um, the actual figures. I think we made something in the region of, Hundred well, about two hundred to three hundred million um, in revenue from from the Lions series alone, and it was much needed because if it didn't happen, we wouldn't have had support for the likes of the Cheetahs who have been in financial trouble, the EP Kings who, who who've been in financial trouble, just lost a CEO last week when Tando Manana left. Um, yeah, it it would have been disastrous for for South African rugby. Um, and I, and to answer your initial question, do I think that the United Rugby Championship will be, will be beneficial? Just look at the, at the mechanics. Let's not even look at the numbers. If you, if you watch a Premier League game, you can watch a Premier League game all the way until 8 p.m. from 1 p.m. in the afternoon. Sure. If you're trying to watch a game in New Zealand, you have to wake up at six o'clock in the morning. Yeah. How many people are up at that time? It just doesn't make any sense. Um, so I was always for the move. Um, to, to play north, south instead of, uh, south, east. Mm-hmm. Um, New Zealand and Australia, I think, will definitely suffer for this. Um, one, the level of competition is, is not the same without the Springbok teams, without South African teams. And then two, because we have so many South Africans already playing in, in the Northern Hemisphere, people want to watch those teams anyway. Those guys want to watch us. So there's a lot more broadcast revenue coming. Uh, Sky. Skype, um, and BT and all of these other broadcasters in, in the Northern Hemisphere have a lot more money than the broadcasters sitting in New Zealand and Australia anyway. So it goes back to your whole thing about the Euro. It's always going to win. Those it's foreign always currencies going are always to win. going to win. It's always going to win. And then if we can somehow, again, I'm jumping the, jumping mm. again, if we can somehow be part of the whole six nations mix, because obviously there's big talk around that. That's yes. also an absolute no brainer. That's financial certainty for. It's a no-brainer, and, and and looking at the success of the URC right now, um, in terms of revenue and and people watching, for them um, in in Europe, they want South Africa to be in there. 
it doesn't make any sense not to. Well, especially when we'll, with World Rugby trying to have these sort of watered down World Cup structures, mm. like they like with um, they do it so well in in, in football with that mm. Nations League, whatever. Yes. Yeah, I say do it so well. I think they're clogging this year's fixtures up far too much. Yes, too many games, far too many. Even the guys are playing a World Cup in December. Far too many games, and they're playing now. They're playing I now. Mean, it's crazy. It's like I'm sure, like test your squad and all that kind of stuff. But no, there's got to be levels mm. here. Um, I. I Again, I could probably chat to you about for like seven hours and about rugby in general because yeah. I have many theories about New Zealand how they shot themselves in the foot, but we must move on. Mm. Um, there's a big rumbling in golf right now around yeah. money. Mm. There are so many different talking points. Phil Mickelson was essentially cancelled, ostracized, thrown out into the scrap heap of sporting legends because of his certain comments. Mm. But Phil, Phil plays it fast and loose in every single way, mm. shape and form. We've known this from his gambling background to the way mm. he plays golf. Mm. His comments around the PGA tour, which, and then he was trying to leverage the Saudi back tour to then get it on over the, I don't know. It was all very murky. Yeah. Yesterday he put out a statement by basically saying he's taken some time off away from the mm-hmm. game. I mean, he didn't even defend the PGA champs, the mm-hmm. major that he won. And he has committed to the LIV, um, Saudi backed, um, new golf league essentially. Yeah. Now, if you don't know what this is, this mm-hmm. is Greg Norman and a whole bunch of Saudi backed money. Mm-hmm. It's come together. They're offering fantastic guarantees. I mean, there mm-hmm. is talk that Dustin Johnson is going to get $120 million mm-hmm. to be a part of this. Mm-hmm. Now, bear in mind, Tiger Wood, the greatest golfer of all time. Sorry, Jack, but that's true. Mm-hmm. He made $121 million, I think, his entire career. Mm-hmm. Dustin Johnson is going to get that. Mm-hmm. Up front, yeah. To be a breakaway in this thing. Paul Mickelson is reportedly going to earn $200 million to be part of it. Um, there's no cut. Uh, so every every golfer will make some sort of money. Yeah, I hate no the, cut events. They're boring. At the very least, two 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 hundred fifty thousand dollars. Um, that is just staggering, staggering money. And many would say, "Well, they're rich golfers. Why do they need the money? Surely they'll play the prestigious events." Well, the question is, are they actually rich golfers? Um, so for for most players who are not on the PGA Tour, right? Uh, because that's most players. Yeah. The PGA Tour is a very exclusive club, right? Uh, there's, there's very few players who can play on the PGA Tour. For every other golfer out there that is not on the PGA Tour and that plays on the European Tour, or let's come back home and talk about the Sunshine Tour. Those players are ind- you know, the independent contractors, right? Yeah. So you pay your own flights, your own accommodation. You pay for your trainer. You pay for your caddy. You pay for your own food. You pay tax. Now, if you're going to make two, let's say the top earner on the Sunshine Tour last year made 2.6 million rand. That was a bumper season. That was a bumper season, right? Minus all of those costs. Your, your, your revenue comes to maybe 1.3 million. Yeah. And uh, so you've lost half of your revenue already. Let's just, 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 let's just really it. break it down for salary purposes. Say you're making a mm. hundred thousand rand a month. Yeah. If you're making a hundred thousand rand a month, you're coming out with less than it's about forty two maybe, let's say forty three K a month. That's after you all of your 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 payments and all of your expenses, and they could be even more. Mm. Now, not every player is, is sponsored. Um so you could get a sponsorship deal that provides you with with kit, uh with clubs and so on and so on. But if you don't have that, you have to buy your own clubs. You have to buy your own clothes. Yeah, I mean, like, I, your own I, balls. I think when, when it comes to the Saudi league, I mean, like, mm. again, it's not a podcast in itself. How difficult to be a golf pro because yeah. a lot of the guys are, are losing money every single month. Yeah. I think, um, 
a golf pro I spoke to recently, he said something along the lines of you are going to spend 40,000 rand a week if you want to play on the DP World Tour. Mm-hmm. When you consider all the things you said there, that's yeah. what's going to cost them. Mm. So if you're not making a cut, you're 40K in, 40K the, in the hole. In the hole. And that's just – and, and, and you're on the road for, for one, a month. Yeah, exactly. So you're looking like – anyway, different conversation. Yeah. But 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 in, in any case, if we go back to the LRV tour, yes. um, the LRV tour itself, in and of itself, right, um, I think is very interesting. I, I agree with Greg Norman's um, assertion that these guys are independent contractors. They can't be – it's not. It's not uh, the UFC where they're forced to to fight in the UFC. Well, that was my very next question can't. because the PJ was saying there'll be sanctions involved. Yeah, but how do you sanction them? Like, exactly. is it illegal for a player to go and play somewhere else? It's not. Well, I think that they're basically they're going to be playing, calling some bluffs in this one here. Yeah. Um. And okay. And, so, just, so just to be clear, the PJ tour do not have authority over where these guys go and play. They should no. They don't. You, you, you don't get like a, a PJ tour card and says, "Well done, you are now playing PJ tour events." Yeah. You, you, you qualify and, and sometimes they would invite you to play onto this, onto the PGA tour. You would get a wild card entry or whatever sure. it is, but you could play on other, on other tours. Mm. So what's the difference between this one and that one? The only difference is that it's at the top level. It's targeting the top players. You've got Sergio Garcia. You've got Dustin Johnson, um, Martin Keimer, blah, blah, blah. All of these guys have been top level golfers who've won tournaments on the PGA tour and been right up there on the PGA tour. They're not choosing to go and play at a tournament where they guaranteed money. Uh, they guaranteed a lot more money than they, than they would have earned on the PGA tour. Um, and the PGA tour doesn't like it because it's threatening their, their existence. And then they're using the, well, you know, these guys chopped off and, and you know, they, they killed a journalist and absolutely right. But yeah. if the, if the money had come from somewhere else and not the Saudis, what would they be saying? Yeah, the conversation quite, would be very different. It's quite funny. There are some double standards here, and there's no doubting the Saudi history on this. Mm. Something that I do find interesting is that, I mean, ultimately, you start playing your professional. Mm. Professional means you want to make some money. Yeah, you know, someone like Louis Oosthuizen, I can't see why he would want to do this because the PGA Tour is good. He makes good money, and he mm. wants to play and try and win big prestigious events. But yeah. then I also look at it as like, as fans get so carried away with the emotion of this kind of stuff, mm. this guy's got kids. He's yep. got a horse ranch. He yep. wants time with them. Yep. So rather than hacking for 30 weeks of the year when he's trying to mm-hmm. get these wins, trying to make this money, the size is going, okay, so you can play 10 events and we'll guarantee best case scenario money-wise. Yeah. So he's looking at this and going, okay, so what you're telling me is I've got the next 20 weeks with my family. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. For I'm, more money. For more. I'm, I'm in. I'm yeah, in. exactly. And I totally get it. So, but like, this is my big question. This one is that, is it sustainable? There's obviously a huge runway of money that's got into this kind of thing. Like mm-hmm. all startups. Okay. You say to yourself, cool, we got money for say three years. We're going to bankroll this thing. We're going to see it go. Yeah. I don't see these events being that entertaining. I don't think the fields are good enough. This yeah. whole no cut business means mm-hmm. there's, there's nothing to play for on. on one of the best things in golf is watching Friday afternoon where you know a guy's got to get two or three birdies coming in to like, yeah. to make money because there's urgency. If everyone's got no cuts, it's like, yeah, it's almost exhibition-like. Yeah. No, I, I, and I and I hear you on the sustainability part, but I think what they're trying to do is, first and foremost, establish the event and make sure that it actually, that they actually, you know, get a field of players who want to play. And then as as event gets bigger, um, you you start introducing more traditional rules such as a, such as a cut, but then also ensure that they, that the players who do get cut, 
earn some money regardless of, of whether, of where they finish. Um, well, that's always the hardest thing about golf is yeah. the fact that you can do this for two days and you yeah, make zero. It's, it's very difficult. Um, and, and I completely understand the, why players are saying, but this gives me a little bit more freedom and I'm a little bit more secure because they're not secure on the PGA tour. It costs a huge amount of money just to be there. Well, if you, you know? were to, if you were to take away Ricky Fowler's commercial prowess mm, yeah. and he was just a golfer, that guy be very difficult. would be checking what he's spending money on right yeah, now. It would be very difficult. He was a top 10 golfer competing all the majors. Mm. Now he's really just, he's trying to find something. Yeah. If he makes a cut, it's a big week. Yeah. Take away all the endorsements. That yeah. guy would jump at this thing. Yeah. The first and, opportunity. And, and, and how many players actually are endorsed commercially, actually make money out exactly. off, of the, off of the golf course? That's not a lot. Exactly. It's so not true. a lot. So even, even, even with players that are on the PGA tour, almost, well, basically almost all of those players are endorsed, right? But those endorsement deals don't always include money. Um, and when, when they do just include, um, you know, kit or whatever it is, it makes it difficult. Um, and yeah, some players obviously are paid to play, uh, Tiger Woods and the top, the top pros are paid, mm. are paid, uh, money. I think Tiger was paid three million just to play in, uh, in Turkey at some point. Um, Tiger's caddy was one of the richest sportsmen in, in New Zealand at some point, and he's, he he's was, a caddy. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. like Tiger's caddy used to have like his own less car hobby yeah. funded by the fact that he was carrying this dude's bag. Yeah, true. But that's 1%. Yeah, no, it is. 1% of the players. But so, anyway, yeah. So all those people, sorry. <coughs> mm. All those people that you mentioned there, mm. they, they, they bring the audience. Um, mm. So my, my, my misgivings towards this thing is like, will it be sustainable after the stage? Maybe the, maybe the money will never run out. Much like the oil, who yeah. knows? That's a different business financially, model. Altogether. Financially speaking, it's very sustainable for the Saudis because they've got bottomless. It's sure, it's bottomless, and 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 they know that sport is a very good avenue for them to push a certain agenda. That's yeah. that's why I look at Newcastle, for instance. That's not that's not a two day or two year play. That's ten, fifteen yeah, years. Sure. You know, well, and, it's, and, I mean, uh, some people call it sport washing. Because yeah. you know they they're looking to improve this, the global image, looking to push mm -hmm. uh, sports tourism. I mean, it, it's what, not it's not just some guys like, hey, money, golf, yeah, cool, let's exactly. do this. What's the current image of Qatar after after Manchester City and PSG? And you don't people don't really talk about Qatar in a negative sense anymore. No, you know? I mean the articles are there, but yeah. it's like they've, again, they've achieved exactly what they wanted to do precisely. Um, yeah. So I want to speak audience because if you don't have the audience, you're not going to make the big bucks. Correct. I think that's one of the dynamics around sport that you cannot get away from. And there's two parts where I want to take this section of the conversation. Firstly, the Forbes top 50 comes out. It's always the kind of use, the same names are towards the top and made up of it. American dominated because American sport is always been that much far further ahead. Mm. When you look how entrenched, um, sports and industries like baseball, basketball, NFL, even hockey players to that degree. So 35 of the top 50 are all American based. Now we can obviously gloss over the, the usual suspects there, but the one name in the top 50 I found so interesting in a business and cash and sport kind of sense is that mm. Jake Paul is in the top 50. Mm. Jake Paul was a YouTuber slash content creator at the cusp of where this was really rising. He built a huge audience of teens that watch him do anything. Mm. I'm obviously, I was too old for that, but then he decided, Hey, I want to box. What's that about? He made his own boxing business, essentially. Yeah. He calls people out. He fights them. He is very smart how he does this because he calls MMA fighters out. Mm. Now, if you don't know, 
if a boxer is to fight anyone in a bar, a boxer basically wins mm. because of the skill set involved. MMA in an MMA setting will rip someone apart, sure. But if you look and knock someone out in the confines of boxing, one-on-one exchanges, a boxer will always wins. So he knows he's almost like hedged his bets there. Mm. So he's got in there and he's proven the theory that sport is just pure entertainment and he's making huge money. What are your thoughts on that guy? And again, do you think this is kind of a sustainable way of going about it? Because he's offering, quite like the Saudis, Mm. guaranteed money that hardworking fighters aren't getting. Mm. And that in in itself is like his business model now. Yeah. um, I've got mixed feelings about this one. on the one hand, I completely understand the business model. It's a brilliant business model. And I've said this for a while, but sport can't just be about come in, play and leave. Fans want a lot more than that. And I think America's the, the holy grail of that entertainment and sport oh, is sure. married together. Well, if you just look what the UFC did, they were the ones that during COVID were like, we have mm-hmm. to go back. We are yeah. going to go back. And they're an entertainment company like no yeah. other. It's actually my favorite sport. Yeah. I, I, I'm a kid that grew up on rugby, cricket, and golf. MMA is my favorite sport. Yeah, and I never and, thought I'd say that, but I mean that's me. Yeah, but it's a it's 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 entertaining, right? Sure. Um, but what Jake Paul has done is he's taken the the online uh, digital audience, right, which is captive and and engaged, and he's taken that and he's married it with the traditional boxing audience. Because when he right. says he wants to fly to fight Floyd Mayweather or whatever. The boxing audience is like, Floyd is 40 years old. He's going to rip this guy apart. And Jake Paul takes his, his millennials and is like, well, uh, so that, that, that was his brother that fought. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, yeah. what's his, Logan. Yeah, Logan. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the, 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 the strategy is the same, right? Yeah. If he wants to fight Tyrone Woodley, for instance. Yeah. Right. Who he knocked out, you know, the, the, the traditional fan is going to be like, easy fight for Woodley, blah, blah, blah. And then he knocks him out. It's like, okay, well, and then he does it again. And he does, I mean, how many, you know, so for him, I, I think the business model makes perfect sense where it highlights some, some serious problems is in sports like boxing, for instance, where boxing is kind of dying as a sport in, ter- in, in that then the, the number of stars is dwindling, uh, the, the, you know, you, you don't get, there, there's so many, it's so fragmented. There's so many, there's WBA, WNBC, blah, 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 blah. There's like 20 different uh, federations. Far too many. You, you, you never see the best of the best fighters f- fighting against each other. So you lose that star attraction because sure. you just don't know who the star is anymore because there's so many guys claiming to be. Um, but, uh, you know, overall, I think that it speaks to where sport is going in terms of, um, just audiences. People are, kids are, kids are watching online. They, they, the, the numbers of people that are playing, you know, on Twitch or whatever is gigantic in, in comparison to the traditional sports audience. And sport is moving away from just your traditional broadcast models and they're now providing OTT uh, platforms where people can watch, uh, fights on Twitch. And there's a, there's someone talking along or whatever it is. Um, yeah, I think. I've got mixed feelings around the, you know, legitimacy of this and, and how far it can go because there's only so many celebrity fighters or celebrity fights that you can have before people are like, uh, this is a fad. Yeah. So, well, basically he has to fight a boxer next. Yeah. He has to and fight I, someone I, probably. I know, I know mm. he's trying to fight Tommy Fury. Yeah. Um, but that's not him. Tommy Fury is not for me. To, for me, Tommy Fury is not. Um, and, and this is why I'm saying there's, there's so many people that are, there's only so many people that you can fight. Yeah. 
Right. Well, he, um, he, he needs stock, essentially, yeah. like anyone he's trying to sell. Yeah. And I think Dana White is like, this isn't good for our business. Mm-hmm. Because I think a great fight would be Jorge Masvidal yeah. against um, against Jake Paul. It'd be a great fight. It really will yeah. be. But again, it's like going back to the contracts. It's it's one of those evolving things. I, I think it's been good in that it's also shown uh, fight to pay in the mm-hmm. MMA. That was mm-hmm. one of his big things. Yeah, it's like you don't you don't pay these guys enough. Yeah, and I think another the whole thing about being paid enough is a, is a, is a huge um, argument in so many different ways. Again, you go back to like what's the audience. Mm-hmm. So Francis Ngannou was getting paid. I think he gets like six hundred thousand for a fight as a heavyweight champion of the UFC. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tyson Fury gets over ten, twenty, whatever. Twenty million. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's material. Yeah. So, but then you work it work it back. Okay, so but is Francis Ngannou's audience as mm-hmm. big as say, I don't know, Usman, um, Kamara Usman? I would mm-hmm. say probably not. Yeah, is it as big as Israel Adesanya. Yeah, for a fact, not. it's not. Mm. So going into audiences and direct pay, there's been some sort of landmark sort of uh, progress being made with um, the, the gender pay gap. Yeah. Now, this is a huge argument, which I've been involved in various, various stages throughout. Mm. And it, Ronda Rousey um, was quoted in saying that women should get paid for what they bring to the table. Mm. As in, like, if your audience is huge, she's a great example. She yeah. got into the MMA scene. She was the first woman superstar in the ufc mm. her pay-per-view was huge yeah she then took that to wwe as a wrestler again huge audience makes huge mm. amounts of money the i think that the, the biggest case for the the gender gap in sport that's just not on whatsoever mm. is um football soccer mm-hmm. as the americans yes, call it soccer the yeah. men's team doesn't win world cups the men's team gets paid four times, perhaps, as much yeah. as the women's team. The women's mm-hmm. team are World Cup champions. Yes. When you look at FIFA World Cup um, final um, mm-hmm. audience stats, they're actually pretty big on the women's side. People always yeah. go, oh, more guys, more people watch them, the men's all around. Yeah. Well, not always because America doesn't watch the FIFA World Cup because mm-hmm. the men's team is nowhere in it. Yeah. America watches from the women place and the numbers are huge. The numbers are massive. Anyway, we could wax lyrically on the numbers and this kind mm-hmm. of stuff. What's your take on, is this more of an emotional subject or is this more of a business subject when you consider this? And that I think the women's American football team is almost an anomaly in this space. Mm. Um, a lot of the time they deserve exactly what it is. How... How are audiences kind of, I'm really butchering this as a question, but uh, how are audiences assessed in a financial level yeah. to make the right amount, who gets what? And do you think that there's a scientific process behind that that's just not being, what's just being flouted by administrators? Mm. Or is that something that needs a lot more work until we actually fully understand what women athletes are really worth? Yeah, I think the answer to that question comes in, in, um, in a different space, not necessarily the audiences. Generally, with, when sponsorships or broadcast agreements have been agreed, generally the, the broadcast agreement would include the women's element in the men's element. So let's say, for instance, you pay a, a sponsorship fee for the spring box, they would just bundle the, 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 you know, the women's game in it and then right. say, we'll pay you a, a flat fee for, for, for rugby, okay. you know, or whatever. Nowadays, what started to happen is that, um, federations and, and rights holders have started unbundling those deals or those, uh, revenue streams and saying, we want our women's team to have their own revenue stream. We want our men's revenue team to have their own revenue okay, stream. Okay, smart. Now, 
it's a difficult play because you're, you're coming from nowhere and saying, well, value what the women's rugby team is worth, whereas value what the Springboks rugby team is worth. Sure. And sponsors, FIFA's even created a whole new category for, for, for FIFA women, um, leading up to the World Cup where Visa's a, a sponsor. Um, and they, they want to have women's sports as a standalone thing so that, you know, we can actually see properly where the value is. Mm. Our problem is that because sports rights have been bundled for so long, it's very difficult to understand what the true value of women's sport is or what right. it has been over the years. Um, now to answer your, your, your question, um, I don't think it's a, I think the, the major opportunity for, for anyone in sport right now is women's sport because male sport has such a saturation level that, you know, the, the, the growth is very minimal. Whereas in women's sport, put your money in women's sport, they output, they perform, you know, let's not forget that for a long time, a lot of these, uh, women's sport athletes had to be a good friend of ours. Sanani, while she was playing, she had a, she had a, she had a, you know, a bursary, uh, fee, but a lot of the players that she was playing with were also fully employed. So how are you going to be performing at the, at your highest level when you also have a job at the same time? Totally. So it was, almost impossible for these players to perform at the highest level. But then if you go and look at the World Cup and what these American women are doing, New Zealand women are doing, uh, they just Dutch women are doing, Vivian Miedema, actually the striker for Arsenal, is, geez, man, she's an outstanding player. So if you look at the the the, the, the stats and the numbers, women's sport is growing far faster than men's sport, mm. right? But can you pay the same same amount? Probably not but they're making a very good case for you to start paying them a lot more than what you were paying them before. Oh yeah. I mean, that I, I will never have a problem with. I mm. think it's, it's such an interesting point that um, people have this, like what you said about unbundling those kind of things. There's like, mm. there's so many old conventional ways of thinking about women's sports. Yeah. And I feel like once that falls away, we'll get a much better semblance of what it is. Yeah. My, my biggest talking point around this is that again, this could be a very sort of, um, maybe crude way of looking at it, but I don't think enough women mm. watch women's sport yeah. to really drive that huge amount of growth that will get it to the Yeah, but the problem parity. also is is people don't watch people can only watch sport when it's there for them to watch. If you're gonna have a Bafana Bafana game on on SABC one, right? And then you're gonna have a a a Banyana Banyana game which is delayed live, you can't you can't then complain when people aren't able to watch the game. Mm. Or you can't complain when, when the game is only available on YouTube. You know, we have to give the amount of airtime required, to, you know, because the, the men's game didn't get to where it is now by, you know, by, well, by mistake. There was no competition. They, was, yeah. yeah. The, the games were broadcast and people started watching. Mm. Broadcast the games and people will watch. And the numbers have proven it. Um, you know, the women's games are watched. It's just obviously not at the same level, but you're going from a, you're going from a, you're starting from a lower base in any case. Sure. So I think, I think if we open up the, you know, open up the industry more, give women's sport a little bit more of an opportunity in that it actually gets, um, you know, airtime and it gets, you know, it's put in front of people's, um, you know, people's screens and so on and so on. People will watch. It's just, I think, and as weird as this may sound, it's a it's a little bit early to say whether the 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 conversation about equal pay is is justified because we've 
bundled to the rights for so long, we just we actually don't know what the true value is of women's sport. Um, it's difficult to say. In America, it's very easy because, I mean, yeah, for a long time, I've thought that the, that, that women's team should be paying, getting paid more. I mean, they attract higher audience numbers. Sure. <laughs> they they win big competitions. Very simple, you know. Okay, yeah. well, there's definitely to to be continued in that. But I like we said that it's too early. It's too early to see, and the sweeping suggestions that come onto it maybe aren't founded just yet. Obilind mm. um, thank you so much for your time today. We have to get out of the studio. It's been a great first episode of the State of Sports, and I, for one, have known more about the State of Cash and Sport thanks to you. Follow him on Twitter, Cash in Sports, so the letter N. And also, you got a podcast, right? Yeah, uh, but it needs to come back. <laughs> I've, I've been so lazy. I haven't, I haven't had time to create a whole bunch of content. But yeah, it's coming back soon. So yeah, Cash in Sport on YouTube, Twitter, um, Facebook, LinkedIn. Those are the um, the main platforms. Cool. And you can catch me on Twitter at Follow the Bounce. And more of the state of sports will be coming to you soon. Thank you very much.